house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. Mallory. Feared by thousands. I love you so much, baby. I love you. Watched by millions. We're fighting. Can't stop fighting. Nobody can. It's kind of like the Twilight Zone or something. Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis, Robert Downey Jr., and Tommy Lee Jones. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that's traversing a high wire over New York City with Pepe Le Pew. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here as always with my partner in metaphorical crime only, Chris File. I'm here in a series of wigs. Um, <laughs> You're terrorizing the way that diner Juliet waitresses. Lewis, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the way that Juliette Lewis says the word baby, I think, should be studied in film studies classes. I almost said it at the very beginning. That, that like, baby? Like, yeah. It is cinema. It is oral cinema. I want to do, I want a, a clip of Juliette Lewis saying baby from this movie, and then Reese Witherspoon from Walk the Line saying baby, 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 baby. <laughs> the clip that won her the Academy Award, uh, improbably enough. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Juliette Lewis uh, quite a bit in this episode, because we're talking about Natural Born Killers, a movie that definitely did have Oscar buzz. I know we tend to have the... Uh, the incredulous among you tweeted us and be like, really? And like, bitch, we got Golden Globes and Venice receipts. So I think also that we're dealing with the type of film now that even though like for what the movie is, and of course we'll get into this movie because it's a lot of movie. It's a lot guys. Of movie. Um, I think it's also the type of case where there might even be more now. Like, the Golden Globe director nomination for Oliver Stone, I'm a little bit surprised that there isn't some type of carryover nomination from, like, the DGA, right? Because it's very much, especially the controversy that went around this movie, I think now you might see people, like, rallying around a director for his directorial intention when, like... You know, you have actual politicians speaking out against this movie and misinterpreting its intentions. I have a couple theories as to why that we'll get into as we uh, go along. But yeah, that's a good... I think there's a a big kind of obvious one there, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a movie that could not feel more of its time. And I don't necessarily mean that as a negative. Like some, like a lot of this movie does feel like, oh, wow, like this is a very mid nineties kind of movie in terms of visual sensibility, in terms of like what was audacious then in terms of its ideas. Um, Mm -hmm. but it also, it's an incredible, like it's, 
almost I don't want to say an accident of timing because some of it was definitely intentional and the fact that like it got released at the end of August 94 and you can tell that they were editing it probably up through August because it's almost a year of post-production for this movie there was so much shows yeah so much post-production so many edits like I read somewhere that there were something like like four or five times the number of edits that usually go into a movie were in this they movie. had to go back and forth with the MPAA right I admit I had for whatever reason misremembered the director's cut as being like some true Oliver Stone epic and that it was like a half hour or it's only like five um, minutes longer right or something like no that? and that's because even though it's only five minutes, it's still an extensive amount of cuts that they had to make right, right. to the violence of the movie where you're talking about like real minutiae right. that they were not allowed to show to get an R rating. But this movie comes out at the end of the summer 94 and feels like such a statement about the OJ era. And OJ, like the Bronco chase was in June of 1994, like mid-June mm-hmm. 1994. And, th- and this movie comes out at the end of August. So like it's... It, and you can tell they were editing it up until the last minute because they put footage of the OJ trial. That's exactly in the right. Movie. Yeah, like clearly, there this movie had ideas about celebrity violence culture um, already, sort of in the hopper. There's stuff they have True also show muckraking. Right, they show stuff about the Menendez trial and Tanya Harding and and um, uh, Lorena Bobbitt and in a in a in a very sort of poor taste thing, like lumps Rodney King into the whole thing, which like take a break, Oliver. But, like, clearly this movie was commenting on, like, the moment that the country was in, like, at that very second. Which I think does make the movie um, kind of a really interesting historical artifact in in addition to all the sort of, like, you know, artistic things it's doing. Uh, I mean, like, I, I still would have been a kid at this time, but, like, also, it, this didn't stop, too. Like, it made me think of just, like violence as like feverishly consumed entertainment like cops and stuff and like that's what he was trying to this that's what he's satirizing and that's what he's condemning with this movie i think there are still like limitations to what he's doing but like right it felt viscerally like what this movie does achieve to me is it really gets at the psychosis of what it is like to constantly be taking that type of media and being fed it like it's entertainment. Like, and we even see it now in a way that is way more uh, like supposedly sanitized and like treated like it is much more high art, but, or it is much more, um, I don't know, acceptable than like shit like cops. That's like violent and horrible and like sets bad cultural precedents. Right. Um, But, like, in just the obsession of true crime media now, where it's, like, just because you have a nice, pleasant voice giving it to you in podcast form or in, like, documentary form, like, doesn't mean that we are any less removed from, like, this kind of true crime gross obsession. But I do think it's it's, uh, interesting and probably important to sort of, like, to kind of place yourself into what that culture was at the time. Because now we have, mm-hmm. like, we're, you know, we're constantly swimming in it. We've got, you know, there's Twitter and the 24-hour news cycle and social media. And as you said, podcasts and true crime and Netflix and all this kind of stuff. But, like, back then, I think maybe because 
the outlets were fewer and the you know mm-hmm. i think the the culture was more sort of... egregious of these like it, because the we'll get into the whole robert downey jr thing of it but like yeah. the show that robert downey jr has in this movie and the type of journalism he's doing like it's an extreme portrait but like it's so close to what it really was like in the 90s well, and that's, those type of shows. That's the thing is you had um fewer sort of points of contact with this stuff but like if you remember at the time not only was this you know the mid 90s sort of like true crime boom it was also the era of um daytime talk show supremacy where there's a lot of Geraldo in in Robert Downey Jr's character um but this is like the Geraldo Phil Donahue Jenny Jones Ricky Lake sort of like and they were all of them at various different stages um obsessed with this kind of thing but it was also the era of hard copy and inside mm-hmm. edition and 48 hours and all these other like primetime news magazine shows which were also equally obsessed with this kind of stuff. And then the OJ thing ushered in the era of, like, court TV, which begets, at some point along the line, Nancy Grace. And sort of, like, it's a timeline and continuum, but, like, I, mm-hmm. it's so important to remember that just, like, not only was this stuff sort of pervasive at the time, but the outlets that were covering it were covering it from, like, such a hard angle and such a sort of, like, aggressive angle. And... I think this movie, I'm of two minds on this movie. I'm at sort of at least, of at least two minds on this movie. I have a lot of sort of, you know, opinions about it. But I think especially in the first hour, it, I think, does a pretty effective job of putting yourself in the middle of this sort of cultural fascination with Mm -hmm. what was going on and the madness of it. And the sort of, I think the first half of the movie does a much better job of making the case that it is commenting on how, like a national obsession with these kind of characters without, um, while making it incredibly nightmarish and incredibly like, like how do you, how do you depict a modern day, celebrity crime spree while you depict it in the most sort of like surreal fashion possible because you changing like lensing formats every second film stock constantly so it's like you can interpret each as like uh an empirical truth the data truth a a fabrication uh like outright lies or like spin within an like a single sequence Right. And I think the second half of the movie, once they're in prison and once it becomes a little plottier, it it does a less effective job of depicting them from that remove. I think the second half of the movie, it's it's harder for me to buy the case in the second half of the movie that Stone doesn't fall in love with these characters too much. Mm -hmm. Right? And I think watching the first half of the movie, I remember thinking, because my opinion when I first saw the movie, this is only the second time I've seen this movie, I can't imagine willingly seeing it a third time. It's so unpleasant to watch. And Uh and And I mean that as like a value neutral statement. It is just unpleasant to watch but i was watching this again and for the first half i was just like oh maybe i was wrong maybe i was a little too um wrapped up in my revulsion to sort of like see it objectively and i was thinking that like oh this maybe you know this movie deserves more respect than i gave it and then in the second half i'm just like okay all right this is this is why maybe this is why i reacted this way um the only thing about that that works in the second half of the movie is there is much more focus on 
um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character yeah. in the second half. Yes. And, like, it, if there's any valuable satire to kind maybe not any, but the most valuable satire is, like, the obsession with that, like, uh, that character. I thought a lot of Geraldo in the era, in the era, um, yeah. where it's, like, it becomes kind of more a direct condemnation of a certain facet of this larger global thing that he's talking about, this bigger idea with the whole movie. Right. So, before- But you're right that he does kind of fall into the trap of falling in love with these characters and what they represent. And yeah. I don't think, I don't think he's aware of that, or I don't know if it was intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but before we get too far into it, let's sort of uh, set the table. This movie is, of course, Natural Born Killers from 1994, directed by Oliver Stone, written by Richard Rutkowski, Oliver Stone, and David Velaz, based on an original story by Quentin Tarantino, starring Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis, Robert Downey Jr., Tommy Lee Jones, Tom Sizemore, Edie McClurg, Queen Edie McClurg, and Rodney Dangerfield. This premiered on August 26, 1994, and then three days later, curiously, uh, premiered at the Venice Film Festival. We'll talk about its reception at Venice soon enough. But before that, Chris, would you like to have the unenviable task of summing up this movie in 60 seconds? The thing is, it's not necessarily unenviable because, like, there is a plot, there's things that happen, but, like, what this movie is about is about, like, the textures and the ideas of it. So if I don't get all the plot in there, that's not what the movie is. That's so true. it's fine. Yeah. All right. Uh, ready when you are. All right. I'm, I, I'm good to go. All right. 60 seconds starting right now. Natural Born Killers, we're following a crime spree of Mickey and Mallory. They are going around killing people. It starts when they fall in love and he um, and she kill her parents, including her sexually abusive father. They go on a spree of killing uh, more than 50 people across the United States. Uh, meanwhile, we're seeing side portraits of this detective Scagnetti, played by um, uh, uh, Tom Sizemore, who is himself very sociopathic um, and a psychopath. And the... Oh, we're seeing Wayne Gale, who runs, like, this crime-wrecking, like, Geraldo, hard-copy type of show, um, obsessed with violence. Um, Meanwhile, they eventually get bit by a snake while tripping in the desert, and they get caught because they try to get antidote, and then a year later, they are in jail. Um, uh, Wayne Gale interviews uh, uh, Mickey after the Super Bowl, and uh, then there's a police riot, and they go free. They do. Killing everyone. They do go free. They kill uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. in this film's final scene. That's time. Yes. Um, And, like, that's just kind of the minor... Like, the movie... You know, we complain about the back half of it being so plotty, and that's, like... It's kind of when the movie just, like, slows down, and the first hour is very, very rapid, non-linear. Like, it opens with this... uh, like truck stop diner right. massacre between Mickey and Mallory that is not like the beginning of their violence. It's like in the middle of their spree. You, you know, are sort of all plunged of into this nightmare world almost immediately where mm-hmm. they're at the diner. Every angle is a Dutch angle and every... This is Dutch angle, the movie. This is truly Dutch angle, the movie. Um, it is. It, there's a movie back in the 90s called Dutch with uh, Ed O'Neill. This is the sequel to Dutch. This is uh, Dutch 2, Murder Street, Boogaloo. Um, um, and then, of course, we have Dutch 3, 
Battlestar Earth, <laughs> Dreadlocked, John Travolta movie. Like the three Dutch angle movies of all time. Right. Let's also not forget Doubt. Is I was gonna I was gonna movie. mention the King's Speech, but yeah, 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 yeah. It's a yeah. Little thing. <laughs> um, Doubt. God, remember all the Dutch angles in Doubt? Crazy. Um, but not only that, not only the angles of it, it's like every single line of dialogue is punctuated by the same line of dialogue repeated, but in a black and white frame where like everybody's mm-hmm. acting differently. And it's, it's all jarring. And I think intentionally so. And I think there's no, there is no baseline of the, in the first hour of the movie, which I find terribly unsettling. It's a really, this movie will fuck with you. Like it is, um, you sort of you you almost want to instinct instinctively um, push back against it and just be like you know Oliver Stone like who do you think you are like like what <laughs> what why 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 are you doing this to what purpose are you doing this to what end to what end but it's an effect that he's already used and maybe sure. to better effect with all of these like film stock changes these weird angles like repeating things from different perspectives like especially in jfk listen done so well jfk Um, is probably is one of my top two or three movies of all time like i i love jfk mm -hmm. i watch it all the time that is also a movie that unsettles me that is a movie that will make you feel paranoid in the middle of the day like if that is that is absolutely (laughs) unaffected movie and this and and then i think you see the continuum from jfk to this he in the in between jfk and this he made a movie called heaven and earth which was the third in his sort of vietnam trilogy uh very different movie than than either jfk or especially this one he made he had mentioned at the time that he had made natural born killers because he wanted to make something completely completely different than um than heaven and earth and i think one of the things that is so different about heaven and uh from heaven and earth in natural born killers is that he could basically create this environment i think a lot of heaven and earth was him sort of like dealing with location shooting and and that kind of stuff and Mm -hmm. he could basically create this nightmare world of mickey and mallory's from there's a lot of things out there and content that you can read about the making of this movie and it sounds as chaotic as you could imagine when you watch this movie. <laughs> Robert Richardson was the cinematographer on this. He's won he won an Oscar for JFK. He won an Oscar for what was the Tarantino movie? Um, uh, I think Hateful Eight. He won for yeah. He's won I think maybe multiple Tarantino movies. I think he's won three Academy Awards. I'll look it up in a second. But he at the time had talked about just how he he apparently like hated the experience of making this movie so much. I think the subject matter fucked with him. I think he was going through sort of like these multiple terrible things going on in his life. And also the shooting of it itself was so arduous. He had like sustained an injury as he was doing this. And then his replacement cameraman got like cut on his eye um, filming this movie. Like it was just seemed like an absolute absolute misery but also it's just like again so many things went into the making of this stones mm-hmm. doing um like rear screen projection and he's doing like scenes where like scenes are projected onto walls and then like then they're shooting it all like live and happening like in the same shot and everything it seems like half of the actors didn't know what they were doing. Roddy Dangerfield talked about how he totally didn't understand what the script was going for. And, you know, and yet he gives this 
perhaps like intentionally off kilter performance that is incredibly effective and scary and off putting and unsettling. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's just, there's a lot. These, there's, you know, Stone talks about how he cast Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis because essentially they seemed white trash enough to play this, these characters, which is like a whole thing. You know, you, you wonder, you know, how much sort of respect Stone afforded his cast members. Mm-hmm. And it's a whole thing. It's just, it's a lot going on at once. I imagine any set that featured Oliver Stone, Woody Harrelson, Tom, or, uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr., and Juliette Lewis at the same time, not to mention Tom Lee Jones, but like just 1994, Robert Downey Jr. That's the especially. other thing. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, I, the chaos inherent in that, sh- in that shoot, I can't, I can't imagine. It's so much. It's, it's, it's so much. <laughs> God. Um, but I think when we talk about, when we sort of like try to get like two basics of like why did natural born killers have Oscar buzz to begin with, we really do have to talk about Oliver Stone. This is the second Oliver Stone movie we've covered after Alexander, but I think Alexander comes a decade, a full decade after this movie. And I think by the time we got to Alexander, we had it's a it's a slightly different Oliver Stone where he's become mm-hmm. sort of more uh I don't know about like if if more obsessive is the term, but like his his he, interest had sort of like spiraled away from making the kinds of he was like he was well removed from his Oscar successes. Let's let's mm-hmm. you know probably put it that way. Where like I mean the uh, he still makes movies that will generate some type of buzz because he has he is Oliver Stone and he has those two Oscars even today. Plus, but plus like, a writing Oscar, like he's got he has mm-hmm. like three Academy Awards and he's but yeah but after Nixon, which is the movie that comes out right after Natural Born Killers, uh, Stone's not really an awards guy anymore. To the point that maybe the only one that like doesn't generate any type of Oscar buzz, much to your chagrin, chagrin Joseph, is, <laughs> is savages. savages. Yes, absolutely true. Um, and that's yeah. partly because it's a summer release, you know, so it's like that conversation may not have really started at that point. Whereas if we knew it was coming in the fall, it might have been considered differently. Um but most of the movies crater <laughs> at this point in like the modern day. But like in the nineties, he could have probably done anything he wanted and generated some type of Oscar buzz. And <laughs> this is the movie well, that so, like, proves that to be true. Yeah. Like let's let's do like the quick cursory glance through the filmography, right? Because he's uh starts in the late 70s but really he doesn't really break through until 1986 which is his big platoon year platoon wins best picture but like the other thing about 1986 is he also directs a movie called salvador which mm-hmm. like gets james woods a best actor nomination at the oscars so like mm-hmm. like 80s- and at this point he'd already had his screenplay oscar for midnight express right too. that's yes he had but he as wins, a director yes he wins the screenplay oscar for midnight express in 78 and then by 86 he wins picture and director for platoon which is a movie about the vietnam war starring charlie sheen and willem dafoe and tom berenger it's a huge success it is well the deer hunter had already won for uh Mm -hmm. for best picture but like it is the sort of the 1980s signature vietnam movie right and sort of and then three years later 
in the interim, he directs Wall Street, which is also a Best Actor winner for Michael Douglas. So, like, the Oscars sure do still love Oliver Stone. And then 89, he directs Born on the Fourth of July, which not only is uh, another Best Picture nominee, he wins Best Director because that was the year that Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture but wasn't nominated for Best Director. So um, Stone wins that. But it, this is also the movie that kind of turns Tom Cruise's career around and really, like, is a real milestone in terms of you know, what the kinds of things that Tom Cruise was able to do on screen. It was a huge breakthrough for that. It was, again, another Vietnam film. And Mm -hmm. he becomes, Stone sort of becomes like the American auteur of the moment about sort of um, critical looks at the war in Vietnam. And eventually American life to an American... um... Right. And that continues even in JFK. JFK is hugely obsessed with the idea that Kennedy may have been killed because he was intending to de-escalate the situation in Vietnam. And among, like, the other, you know, dozen ideas that JFK has about reasons that Kennedy may have been killed, but like that doesn't a, being a very modest number. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's depends on if you're that... watching the director's cut or not. <laughs> yeah, right. I love that the Doors also comes out in yes. the same year as JFK yes. and yeah. kind of scrubs the whole like fact that that movie was pretty much a failure. Um, and and completely completely different in terms of focus or subject matter than anything else. I guess it's still sort of like is in that countercultural, you know, 60s, 70s milieu, whatever that the other movies are mm-hmm. talking about. But like, yeah, it is just a, you know, it's a wild ride. It is again, though, like a movie that really helps to define careers for uh, Val Kilmer, even like Meg Ryan, who was in that movie, but like that was another one where it's just like this woman, this actress who was sort of like she was the girlfriend in Top Gun. She was, you know, and then all of a sudden she's in the doors and playing this like incredibly different kind of a character. And he was in very many ways, like you talk about natural born killers as this sort of um, crux point between Stone, Stone's career and Quentin Tarantino's career. And like in very many ways, this is the point where like, they cross paths. Tarantino's arc goes up, and Stone's arc, you know, with Nixon, you know, notwithstanding coming next, but like mm-hmm. Stone's arc essentially goes down, and Tarantino really kind of like takes the handoff from Stone and is then becomes um, much more famous for doing the kinds of like he's making the kinds of audacious films that Stone had been and obviously doing his own thing with it. But, like, there's a lot of similarities in terms of... I think the Rodney Dangerfield casting in this movie is a pure Tarantino move, right? Which is Mm -hmm. taking an actor who we have a very definite picture of in the American cultural consciousness, right? And placing him in a role that is... In this movie, essentially, it plays on that sense of what we had of him and then twists it and really kind of like twists the knife into the audience because of it. I think Tarantino sometimes sort of casts either very much to type or against type in a way that feels a little less pointed than this, but like it's the same kind of stuff he does in terms of like career rehab and like resurfacing these old sort of kitschy figures. Yes. Um the the thing is I wonder where that came from. I mean, you have to imagine that the idea came from Oliver Stone because Tarantino 
was so distanced from this movie. His original script was something that was way more Bonnie and Clyde yes. focused and like focused on these characters versus like the wholehearted perspective of this movie that is just media circus, yes. right? Yes. But it does very much feel like there's not a whole on the surface because of the violence of the movie, there's not a whole lot that you could really ascribe to a Tarantino thing, but that is a smart observation that that's what does feel like it. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that at the time, critics really sort of like latched onto the Dangerfield thing. I remember when I watched this the first time when I was a teenager, that shit like so threw me and so like disturbed me. And I didn't even barely know who Rodney Dangerfield was. I think I had only seen him in like Ladybugs. Was the only, you know what I mean? That would have been oh, my yeah, only. That would have been my only cultural, um, you know, sort of standpoint for that. I mean, like Back to School was on heavy rotation in early Comedy Central, right? Oh, the Tarantino thing. That's what I was. That's what I was thinking of. Was um, mm-hmm. Tarantino's relationship to this movie is very particular and very mm-hmm. uh, at the very very beginning because the. Uh, Stone essentially options this story, this original story that Tarantino had, that I believe he wrote before he wrote um, even his major movies. I think so. Oh, okay. Maybe it was after Reservoir Dogs. Clearly, by this point, Tarantino is known for Reservoir Dogs. Pulp Fiction has uh, premieres in Cannes in May of this year, but like by the time Stone options this movie, I think... Tarantino may have already had Reservoir Dogs out, but um, definitely was not like Quentin Tarantino in stature. As Quentin we know Tarantino it. was definitely um, still uh, like attached to people because the the reputation goes. I'd be so much more interested to hear Tarantino talk about it now yeah. than all of the you know comments we have from him at the time right things like he was threatening actors that he would never hire them if they worked on this movie well it's really interesting um, because at the very very early stage there's a quote from Tarantino that he's just like I'm happy that Oliver Stone's doing my movie I have no you know this is great uh everything that Oliver's doing is fantastic yeah, yeah. and I think that was from like 93 when the film was even in production but then after the fact we hear about yes him talking to I think it's Tim Roth and it's somebody else. Buscemi, from, at least. Right, Buscemi. That they both they wanted both of those actors for the either the Downey role or the Tommy Lee Jones role. And And I'd read that he had said something to Juliette Lewis, but obviously she still took the role. Right. But definitely Buscemi and Tim Roth, where he's just like, I'll never work with you again if you do this movie. He eventually um threatens legal action because he wants to publish the, his script, his story, uh, on, on its own, and the studio wasn't going to let him do that, and there was a whole legal pushback, and Tarantino ultimately comes out and says, like, I hated that movie, I would have never, you know, made that movie that way, yada yada, and... And by reports, his is a much more um, closer to a Bonnie and Clyde type of narrative and this is i mean this has elements of that but it's more about like the american consuming obsession with narratives like that and the 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 toxicity of some of that um the it's interesting i want to know if this stems from some of 
because Tarantino is not a member of the Writers Guild of America. He right. doesn't want to become a member. I wonder if he maybe tried to if this is somehow linked to that and maybe he tried to get his name taken off of the movie because he mm. only gets a story credit. Or well maybe he initially wanted to push for a screenplay credit and didn't get it. And then because maybe it to- was so completely overhauled from what he did. Right. And like you can also understand him being pissed about that because like that's you can and you can't because like that happens all the time with movies. I would frankly much rather watch this than what it sounds like Tarantino's version would have been. I would be fascinated to see Tarantino's version. I think you mentioning that it's it was sounds much closer to a Bonnie and Clyde thing is I think maybe not the approach to take to a story like this in 1994 where because mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde ultimately is yeah I mean you talk about you know depiction is not endorsement and all this stuff but like Bonnie and Clyde absolutely glorifies Bonnie and Clyde and sim you know humanizes them and and you know not saying it shouldn't but like that's what that movie does and I think mm-hmm. a Tarantino movie that is maybe more straightforward and is maybe less horrifying and disturbing and unsettling I think that's I think that's the great virtue of Stone's take on this story is he makes it again especially in that first half of the second half undoes some of this work he makes it impossible I think to um become infatuated with these characters or like res- like like these characters essentially because mm-hmm. it's so nightmarish and you would never want to experience what's happening in their heads or what, you know, or the environments they create for themselves. It's like, this is a movie with, you know, a field of poisonous snakes. And even the stuff where like they get married on that, um, that Rio Grande bridge overpass, whatever, where it's like the whole angle is this extreme high angle where you're essentially just like staring into this deathly abyss of a canyon. And it's just like, oh, right. Like, even at their most romantic moment, this is fucking terrifying. It's psychotic. Um, well, and it's also, I think, Oliver Stone at kind of every turn underlining that his thesis of the movie yes. is our culture of obsessing over violence and true crime and consuming it as a product and it being sold to us as a product too. Because I think one of the other incredibly disturbing things about this movie is like, I mean, watching this movie is truly like channel surfing, right? Yeah. The way that it's cutting and everything. But then you to also the point where have like there are Coca Cola ads within commercials. The, yes, yes. <laughs> the Coca Cola polar bear, like twice. Basically, the whole commercial shows up at yeah. one point, and it is so upsetting because it's also there. It's taking aim at a larger problem with like what we're consuming right where it's in between all of this violence we're sold all of these comforting images so that it can go down easier right um or we're sold a narrative so that we can still manage to be able to be obsessed with this right very spun like images of violence it's interesting to me that in this year this movie was nominated for a couple of mtv movie awards and but it even with it being so explicitly sold to an mtv sensibility in terms of the filmmaking style in terms of the cuts like this thing looks like a nine inch nails music video for a lot of its run trent reznor famously Uh did uh was the was in charge of the soundtrack of this movie and um uh, apparently watched the movie like 
hundreds of times to get himself sort of like immersed in the movie, which is just like, I love Trent Reznor, but like it makes me never ever want to be in a room alone with Trent Reznor to have like had the wherewithal to watch this movie hundreds of times. I can't imagine. You're saying you don't want his streaming recommendations during quarantine. Yeah. And that says a lot because I'm very attracted to, to Trent Reznor. Um, but so, uh, this movie is so attuned to the MTV sensibility and is so, um, sort of ripe for idolatry from, mm-hmm. you know, and I think maybe at the, at the time for like that very, very specific moment in time, I think there was a kind of fascination with like Mickey and Mallory, like, you know, outlaw rebel, like murderers, whatever. In the imagery, especially in like the MTV set, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I couldn't really tell if I felt like it was adopting the like, MTV music video aesthetic or condemning it, it never really feels like it's calling it out by name. No. But I don't necessarily get the impression that it thinks that that is all a good thing or that it's separate from the conversation that it's having. I think it's one of those things where, like, the father forces the son to smoke an entire pack of cigarettes to get him to (laughs) stop smoking. Like, it's almost like that kind of thing. It's just like, you you want this aesthetic. Well, like, here, how do you like it, like, all the time and turned up, the volume turned up this high. Um, But I think it's interesting that even after that sort of, like, initial cultural moment of fascination, Natural Born Killers does not really have that long of a cultural tale. Nobody really ever talks nope. about it. Now, certainly Mickey and Mallory are not cultural figures the way Bonnie and Clyde are, you know, today. I think there's two reasons for that. One being the obvious thing that this comes in the same year as Pulp Fiction, yep. and it's dealing with this very stylized violence in a way that gets across-the-board respect, especially still now in the narrative. And it's not it's not apples to apples. Um, there's a whole different conversation to talk about, like, the ing- like ingraining wit to violence that Pulp Fiction does. And, like, you can go into a whole thing about that. Um, so it's, like, it's not apples to apples, but for, like, certainly awards purposes and film history purposes, like, that is a huge thing for why it feels like we don't talk about this movie anymore. But I think the other thing is... Almost the immediate narrative for this movie is, or what it's cemented as, is a series of copycat killings or Republican figures coming out against this movie and condemning it. Right. Bob Dole uh, used this movie and sort of outrage over this movie to help springboard his eventual campaign for president in 1996. Um, There was a big sort of cultural movement of Republican politicians demonizing Hollywood as a way to sort of fire up their base in a way that still goes on today, but like we've become so sort of numb to it that I don't think it's as effective as a, you know, as an acute tool of campaigning. Although maybe that's because it sort of seeped into um, the population so much that like you don't even need to, really say it anymore it's sort of like stoked these cultural resentments that have kind of calcified in the right and the left but at the time like you couldn't throw a stone without seeing a republican politician call out some whether it's you know murphy brown or the simpsons or natural born Mm -hmm. killers or the real world or like mtv as a catch-all term for like um you know youthful vice degeneracy yeah yeah exactly essentially so um yeah, it's it's interesting. It it is a little heartening to me that 
Mickey and Mallory didn't really become like you don't see like they're not they don't have their own Scarface posters. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they don't have T-shirts. Right. And and that's that probably would have been a concern back then if you like. I mean, you talk about, you know, this rash of like this idea that natural born killers spurred copycat killings is like a thing. Like there are multiple um, murder stories that trace back to, oh, such and such, you know, watched Natural Born Killers one night, and then the next week he and his, like, underage girlfriend went and killed her parents and killed some people. There are, you know, some of these high school shooters from the from the 1990s, from the late 90s. Um, Natural Born Killers was one of those, you know, movies they watched. And, of course, we've given through an exhaustive conversation in the culture about does, you know, violent media hold a responsibility mm-hmm. for violent actions from people who had consumed that media and like this is not or the just people that, you but... know misinterpreting the very obvious intent of a movie and i feel right. like the movie that gets that pegged to it is fight club yes and this maybe feels like an even more um pronounced example of that to me yeah fight club even does i don't think stone's being irresponsible in this even if i do feel like the second half of the movie um his message gets away from him both because he just keeps keeps on hammering at home to the point where you know you you stop feeling anything about it it just sort of just like numbs you but also it's the thing i mentioned where it's like i thought that the uh, an original cut of this movie or one that was out in the populace is like three hours long a because like he makes three hour long movies right but also like i can't fathom watching much more of this movie the two hour cut feels like a three hour movie like it just it feels Mm -hmm. like you're watching it forever um and I also feel like this, you know, again, the latter half of the movie so aggressively makes the media and Robert Downey Jr. the villains of the movie that you can't, like, by default almost, you're like, well, if Robert Downey Jr. and the media are the ultimate villains of this movie, then what are Mickey and Mallory? Like, they're the ones, mm-hmm. it's that thing where, you know, oh, these people are terrible people and they've killed and whatever, but they've never lied. Like they're, they're, you know, honest about who they are. And like, we've placed they're the protagonists a- of the movie, but they never become more than an idea. So mm. it's like, they can't really be the right. antagonists of the movie. Well, even in the fact that like you show their, you know, your, you know, their origins were like all like mm-hmm. Mickey's entire origin is this, like these flashes of rear screen projected, you know, violence and, depravity in his in his home growing up we see a little bit more specifically about mallory's growing up because stone presents it as this sort of fractured sitcom starring rodney dangerfield and edie mcclurg as her parents and rodney dangerfield to this like you know laugh track um sort of terrorizes her and threatens her and gropes her and makes mention of him having raped her and all this stuff and you see, you know, it's very obvious, like, oh, okay, like, this is what, you know, made Mallory into Mallory. And that's what starts the killing spree, because Mickey um, sort of hooks up with her, and they murder her parents and burn down the house and this whole kind of thing. And, um, but it's, it's, it's interesting to me, the sitcom conceit, because I think there's a there's a temptation to view it from a 2020 lens about it being so obvious and so, mm-hmm. but I think at the time, I think it does deserve credit for 
doing the whole, like, we're going to explain how a killer became a killer, and we're going to do it in a way that is so non-straightforward that you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to have sort of solid ground beneath your feet and to be like, ah, see, this is what happens. I'm going to play a sort of armchair psychologist and whatever. It's just like, no, this is a nightmare. This is, you know, everything you ever felt comforted by as a young person watching television is completely now turned against you. And that's sort of a window into what, you know, that kind of a childhood might be like. And I think also revealing and kind of embodying and exposing the way that we mythologize the origins of violence, or at least the media did in that way. Yes. Yeah. To be back to the, I don't think he's being irresponsible note. It's that very thing, right? Of like, I don't think he believes, and watching the movie, I think he makes a very convincing case for all of the things that he is showing us, even though it is, like, in, like, rapid succession and it is very extreme. He's not showing us anything we haven't already consumed before. Yeah. And that people weren't consuming at a regular time. And that's where the indictment is. And it's like, that's a lot for people to take. I think a a lot for people who don't maybe sit and think about what they're watching. Yeah. Or don't want to, you know, this movie does, this movie does demand a a very actively engaged audience for better or for Mm -hmm. worse. You know what I mean? Like it, it does demand a lot of casual viewing. No, no, it doesn't. Can we pivot to Juliette Lewis for a second? Absolutely. At any given moment that you want to say that to me in our lifetime together <laughs> as friends, you can you can pull out that card. One of the things I find fascinating is just how young she is. I always I always reminded that she's younger than I think she is. She was twenty years old when she filmed this. She was it came out just after she turned twenty one, which means she was seventeen when she was Oscar nominated for Cape Fear in 91, but which also means that she was 15 years old when she made National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which is wild to me. Like, that mm-hmm. is, that, like, because normally you're so used She's to so teenagers being played by older people. And also, like, it's such a cliche, but, like, she really does have a presence to her in a way that make that, you know, you, you would have to imagine she would have to be older than what she's playing to be able to play this so well and so intelligently. It also means that she was still a teenager when she was in Husbands and Wives in in 92, which, like, Mm -hmm. is gross. Um, Classic Woody Allen love interest, 18-year-old Juliette Lewis. Um, So she's 20 years old when she films this. It is a remarkable performance. It is, like... She's incredible. It's so charismatic. It's so unsettling. It's, It's... She's so good at what she needs to be doing it's incredible it's yeah like she's asked to she's tasked to do quite a bit because she has to play the idea it feels like mallory has has to shoulder a lot more tonal swings that oliver stone is going for versus mickey feels like he stays more of the same character the whole time um she's kind of very darkly funny sometimes it it's not I mean, just like a the girl gone mad. Have... You know what I mean? Like it could have yeah. been very easily easy to play her as just this like psychotic baby doll. And she goes so far beyond it. 
yeah. Uh, uh, and, like, if there's something that's actually, like, certainly not soothing, but, like, compelling to watch through all this madness, it's just how fascinated I was by her performance. Um, Did you read the story I, that uh, Oliver Stone wanted to cast Tori Amos in this role? Yes, and, like, she has lyrics about how she almost slapped him in... Um, in a sort of fairy tale. Uh, yeah, yes. that's the song. So we go along and we said we fake it. Feel better with Oliver Stone till I almost smacked him soon right but so the so the the story goes, and again, the story comes from Tori Amos, who like I adore more than maybe anybody on this earth. But like, she's definitely a spinner of tales, and I'm always there's always like you know there's the you know she's fantastic, and she lives in a world of fairies, and I love her very much. Um, but she tells the story of how a Oliver Stone pursued her to play Mallory in this movie, which like I don't know what that would have done to me <laughs> you know what i mean to see her play this role like i genuinely like what is that sliding doors universe how do i feel about uh her music what kind of person does that turn me into i don't know um but that he also wanted to use her song me and a gun which was from her 1992 album little earthquakes um in natural born killers now me and a gun is an acapella song which is about her tori uh, which is tori singing about her own rape in a incredibly uh raw and confessional manner it is a very low-key song you can see how that could be used incredibly to incredibly disturbing effect in a movie like natural Mm -hmm. born killers but that tori really objected to the idea of that song with that sentiment being used as a vector from which you know this serial killer would for a man to tell the story he wants to tell that's yes so yes so the story goes that she you know she refused him permission and she slapped him and um and then she also sort of like she continues disgusting ask of him oh absolutely and repulsive and completely misses the point of the song and completely misses the point of i would argue her entire musical career up to that point and um, and it's interesting that in the same year that Natural Born Killers comes out, she releases her second album, which is Under the Pink, which is my favorite album. And um, she, you know, she succeeds and thrives and good for her. But yeah, um, just a wild, a wild story among many of them when it comes to the production of this movie. But back to Juliette Lewis for a second. So this movie goes to Venice again, three days after it opens in the United States. And... It's a success, but sort of an outsider success. We can say that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm shocked that even then this movie made as much money as it did yeah. and was released by a major studio would fully never happen. Neither of those things would happen oh, today. Absolutely and like, not. I realize that's a very basic kind of trite thing to say. But like when you watch the movie, it's astounding. And maybe partly because it was such a controversial movie that like, there was a curiosity factor, but I do also think that it it speaks to the power um, of Oliver Stone just as a name yeah. at the time that even this movie could make that kind of money, um, especially with what it's, uh, you know, inciting in the discussion. Yeah. So it wins a special jury prize from Venice, which is essentially, as you said to me uh, before we started, second place. Mm-hmm. At Venice, and then she wins 
a Critics Prize for Best Actress, and then also a Special Mention Prize for her performance in the movie. And it's it's interesting, and I think correct, that she was the one sort of singled out from this movie. I think Woody mm-hmm. Harrelson is also very good. Woody Harrelson's an interesting thing in this movie because you you forget the fact because we've known him for so long in his career has you know played a lot of different kinds of characters, many you know many of them sort of amoral and 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 villainous and whatnot. Um, but he's a year removed from the Cheers finale when he makes mm-hmm. this movie. Like he's still in the culture. I know he had already made White Men Can't Jump, and he had made um, a couple other things that sort of like pull him away from that persona a decent proposal was the year before this but like he still is very much in the cultural consciousness he's woody boyd you know mm-hmm. simpleton bartender uh on cheers and like you talk about a movie that is you know a career move that is designed to you know completely explode this character who you've become defined by like this is one of those all-time examples of that he's terrifying in this movie by the way he's yeah just like... i mean i think i think he's great in the movie um but you're right that it took a long time for woody harrelson and maybe this movie has something to do with it that he probably freaked people out a little bit yeah i mean he gets the oscar nomination for um people versus like flint shortly after yes. which is again another sort of uh, if if Natural Born Killers somehow didn't do it for you, like playing Larry Flint was basically going to salt the earth behind any ideas that Woody Harrelson <laughs> plays these like sweet characters. Like, but also he plays Larry Flint in a Milos Forman movie. I still need to see that movie. Oh, um, have you never seen it? It's it's a good movie. No, I don't know if it's something that I think about too much very often. But like, he's very good in it. Courtney Love is obviously very good in it. Courtney Love is somebody I thought of a lot during this movie, even though I don't think. I don't think there's any of her songs on the soundtrack, but every once in a while there's a music cue. And I'm like, is this Courtney? Because there's a lot of um, her sensibility, I guess. And like, and, mm-hmm. and she had, she was, I think, close with Trent Reznor around that time. And like, obviously, 94 is the big year for Hole. Hole's debut album comes out this year. And um, Kurt Cobain died this year. Like, uh, this is obviously she's very central in the culture by the time this movie comes out. So she's another person you talk about like who else, you know, might've played Mallory. And I don't think anybody should have Juliet was perfect, but like, I can't imagine anybody else playing that, but like, that's a Courtney love persona, right? Like Mallory in this movie is like, you could see that. I could see that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Interesting. What did you think of the music in this movie? All those Leonard Cohen song cues that like really like chilled me to my bone. I know it, all of the Leonard Cohen stuff is just like perfectly chosen. It's interesting that Trent Reznor um, had some type of role in all of the music in this movie because it's also like very precisely chosen. Um, they keep using um, "Sweet Jane" yes. throughout. Yeah. Uh, that just feels very much like a back to the thing I was saying of like building the mythos and how we kind of romanticize these certain things and the like tools that we use to romanticize them. Yeah. How old were you when this movie came out? I feel like it would have been seven. I, yeah. I was going to say, I feel like this is one of those movies that um, 
sort of defines the age difference between us. So I can't imagine you. Were, oh, but still, I had I had complete consciousness at seven years old you? of what this movie was and how people felt about it. Was it. a That's huge. How it was a huge cultural flashpoint. Was. Like everybody mm-hmm. was talking about this movie. You talk about those things where like everybody was discussing it. Like that's absolutely the case for this movie. It's also probably exactly the age that I started becoming aware of MTV mm. and like cable television and being exposed to those things. Yeah. So I think if we want to pivot to what, you know, why this movie didn't ultimately succeed beyond, and we'll get into the Golden Globe, uh, the Golden Globes in a second, but like I think the Pulp Fiction angle. Mm-hmm. is a huge, huge, huge reason why, ultimately, this movie didn't end up going anywhere in award season. I think it's it's weird because, like, separately, it's weird to say that Pulp Fiction is a more, you know, respectable, scare quotes, yeah, but version it's, but it is. of anything. It's a much but, more like, palatable movie. you have movie. Natural Born Killer... Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And it's also, I mean, in some ways, and this is... Maybe not necessarily to condemn Pulp Fiction because Pulp Fiction is what it is um, and, like, has been interpreted as such. And, like, of course, it's a masterpiece. But, like, Natural Born Killers is, you know, exposing something that I think to at least a small degree Pulp Fiction kind of marinates in, right? Um, And, like, that's kind of the vibe. Um, That's what partly one of the things that was revolutionary about Pulp Fiction was, you know, having a wit about violence. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Aside from all of its interesting things with like narrative structure and like, and Pulp Fiction also kind of, it doesn't make as direct a commentary on the media, but like mm-hmm. it absolutely comments on our kind of cultural history with these stories these i mean the whole the title pulp fiction is itself sort of a meta commentary on the kinds of stories we immerse ourselves in and obviously this is a story about hitmen and you know mobsters girlfriends and you know all this kind of it's such a you know it's a melange by nature and it's ultimately with for a movie featuring any number of dark corners um, is a much easier watch. Is a much more pleasant thing. And of to course, consume. none of this is to say that Pulp Fiction received no controversy or oh, no right. upset people at it, which is of course not true. Course. But like you're right that there's something comparatively to this movie, which by the time Pulp Fiction had premiered in Cannes, so it like people had seen it and people had praised it beforehand, but before the public really sees it, Pulp Fiction's entering a cultural conversation that is already outraged by natural born killers too. Yeah. Um, It's a really interesting timeline that way where like Pulp Fiction happens both before and after natural born killers. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like Pulp Fiction arrives to the public with already a sheen of critical acceptance at at the very least. Yes. well, oh, it had, it had been from from Can. It had all, you know, then becomes the heralding of this as the next big sort of indie sensation. It mm-hmm. sort of defines the, you know, the or at least takes the idea of an indie sensation to the next level. Um, the 90s are sort of a history of indie cinema sort of like leveling up and leveling up and leveling up again. Uh, one thing that both of the movies had in common was that Siskel and Ebert loved them both. And mm-hmm. 
it's always it's it's always an interesting thing with Ebert how he's going to react to something this violent. Sometimes the violence of something really does just like turn him off, and he you know closes mm-hmm. himself off to it. And Siskel is is the ultimate wild card because like who you know who the hell knew what he was go- where he was going to come down on anything. But they uh, two thumbs up for Natural Born Killers, and then obviously they were both big proponents of Pulp Fiction and. Um, yeah, I think that was another sort of like feather that Natural Born Killers had in its cap. I think, you know, there was a lot going for Natural Born Killers. And then ultimately, you just had to remember that just like, oh, right. It's like, it's a revolting movie. <laughs> like, it's a revolting yeah. experience to watch it. Yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing. That's the point of your palatability thing. It's like you leave Natural Born Killers and you feel gross about not only the world, but yourself and how you have participated in what it is chastising you for. And Pulp Fiction, you leave, like, energized and invigorated by. You want to watch all these other movies that he references. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just the feeling of it, but, like, it truly was a revolutionary film and like it makes you think about the ideas of like what cinema can be um yeah whereas natural born killers is just like we are compromised <laughs> right 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 go home and what are you gonna do turn on your television like yeah mm-hmm. oh boy i mean even with all of that and even with the degree i do wonder what happens to a natural born killers at this time for oliver stone if it doesn't have a direct like competition for lack of a better word in pulp fiction where it can amass some type of critical support right. and get a discussion beyond that i do still think that in a time like this where you know narratives around directorial intent are maybe uh, a little bit more galvanized that especially if there's republican you know senators and such speaking out against a movie if like there's a rallying cry to support a director yeah i don't necessarily think that's what the globe nomination is so yeah because if i think especially in in you know this era the globes are going to be more susceptible to all of that pre-buzz or all of that early buzz so then like how a follow here's what's fascinating about the 1994 golden globe nominations is oliver stone gets nominated for best director it's the only nomination that that film gets and Mm -hmm. um so that director field it's Robert Zemeckis for Forrest Gump, who ends up winning. Forrest Gump ends up winning basically everything that year. Tarantino for Pulp Fiction. Robert Redford for Quiz Show. All three of those were both Oscar nominees for Picture and Director. And then the sort of outliers are Stone for Natural Born Killers and also Edward Zwick, our friend Edward Zwick for Legends of the Fall, which, like, could you have picked two more different outliers? in that field like it's you know there's oliver stone with just like blood dripping from the camera and just you know everything's a nightmare and then edwards wick is just like but what if brad pitt were a goddamn dream like what if he were just standing in a field of wheat wearing his a hat. his long golden locks blend into the wheat and he becomes the wheat what if and also julia armand what if brad pitt was your husband's brother like how quickly would you flip flop and 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 have sex with him yeah that is it's it's very funny and and legends of the fall actually got a few 
nominations i want to say um, yeah we can't talk about it on here it's a bummer yeah got a got a <laughs> we both ride hard for shit like legends of the fall yeah it definitely it, it's oscar nomination is for james horner's score right uh cinematography at least i believe yeah i think that's right i think you're right so at the globes it gets nominated for best motion picture drama brad pitt gets an act best actor nomination um up against four eventual oscar nominees in hanks for forrest gump freeman for shawshank paul newman for nobody's fool john travolta for pulp fiction and then eventually who gets added to that oh nigel hawthorne for the madness of king george ends up uh ends up replacing brad pitt in that lineup for the oscars Mm -hmm. um also gets a score nomination does not get a screenplay nomination interestingly enough um but yeah it's that's a really that's 94 is an interesting year and i want to pivot to best actress too because we were talking about juliette lewis giving such a great performance that's one of the weirdest best actress years I can recall Mm -hmm. just in terms of like what eventually made it to the Oscars, not necessarily that like what made it was bad. It still baffles me that Jessica Lange in a movie that had sat on the shelf for years from a studio that had died ends up Mm -hmm. winning, not only winning best actress, but like winning everything. Steamrolling the the field. Like nothing ever comes of it. I think I've said in the past, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Jodie Foster was only a few years removed from winning her second Oscar. And so she was essentially a not never going to win, never going to win, never going to win, even though in, you know, in a world where she didn't have two Oscars on a shelf, I could definitely see her winning for now. Um, Streep's in a genre movie, so, like, there's resistance to that, even though she's so, so, so good in The River Wild, and I will never shut up about it. I think she's fantastic. <laughs> I need to watch that. Winona Ryder gets nominated for Little Women, but, like, she, at this point, which is her second year nominated in a row after um, The Age of Innocence the year before, but I still feel like there was resistance to her as being the sort of, like, gen x girl like they still Mm -hmm. weren't going prepared to like go all the way for her even though she's great in little women i think she's an interesting analog somewhat to especially for like this performance to um kira knightley yeah in pride and prejudice yeah Yeah. um of like people don't take that performance as seriously as it should um i agree as they should Um, it's a girl movie so like there's like a girl movie from something that's been adapted a million times before but like that still doesn't diminish the fact that it's great work so the oscar nominees that year it's lang in blue sky winona ryder in little women miranda richardson and tom and viv who like i've never seen that movie i'm sure she's great she's miranda richardson i think she's almost always great but like that was never going to really happen either that's also like a nomination that is always like anytime you bring it up people are like i've never seen that and that feels even without seeing the movie very similar to like why it seems obvious that she wouldn't win because it's probably the type of thing that's great work in a movie that nobody saw right so yeah lang jodie foster miranda richardson winona Ryder, and then the fifth nominee we've discussed before is susan sarandon for the client which was a nomination that was like a pure reputation nomination. And ultimately I think it's a great performance. And I think it's one of those that was like unfairly slighted at the time because it was from a Grisham movie that was not supposed mm-hmm. to be sort of, you know, high end awards fair or whatever, but she's so good in it, but it's definitely it's a real like movie star performance too. Right. And we've talked before how like that thing is incredibly 
that quality is incredibly valuable but doesn't get respect but it's very much the kind of thing where like oh amy adams we're gonna nominate you for vice we're gonna nominate you for like whatever you're not gonna win this year but you're gonna win eventually but we're just gonna keep like nominating you to like you know string you along essentially until we do end up uh, giving you this award of course sarandon ends up winning the very next year for dead man walking which is a much more oscary kind of a thing um but like other contenders in 94 are really interesting this was the year that jamie lee curtis won the golden globe musical or comedy award for true lies which is like kind of if that nomination would have happened that would have ruled would have been awesome absolutely would have ruled jamie lee curtis is really really good and funny in true lies that's one of those movies where like it's james cameron it is it's it's more of an action movie than a comedy to be sure but like jamie lee curtis's performance especially is pretty comedic so um there's that but there's also one of the globe nominees that i think is really interesting besides meryl meryl gets a globe nomination for the river wild and rightly so they also nominated kevin bacon in supporting so like the golden globes were much better on the subject of the river wild than the oscars were and i think that's a <laughs> feather in their cap but they also nominated jennifer jason lee for mrs parker in the vicious circle which is a movie i've seen at least once i remember nothing about it because i think it's pretty boring but like she won a bunch of critics prizes for that and like she showed up throughout the season i mean even with people like um Jamie Lee Curtis and all, uh, larger performances that have stuck in the cultural consciousness if you look at the award season it's probably more likely that Jennifer Jason Lee was sixth place oh absolutely right? absolutely um but this is the the middle of a sort of inexplicable era where Jennifer Jason Lee is in Movies that are definitely on Oscar's radar that she's definitely getting precursor awards for, and she just cannot buy her way into an Oscar nomination. This is coming in the midst of Shortcuts in 93, um, Miami Blues. What was that other movie? Um, Georgia. Well, Georgia comes right after this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but wasn't mm-hmm. she in um, Last Exit to Brooklyn and getting uh, 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 yes, stuff I for do that? Believe. So, like, she's constantly getting precursor attention like rave reviews she's like you know actress of her generation whatever yeah mrs parker is 94 and then georgia in 95 where like it's the ultimate and this is no slight against mayor winningham who was great in that movie but like the ultimate fuck you is jennifer jason lee not getting nominated in georgia but we're going to nominate mayor winningham the much more palatable character from that movie um it's it's wild. It's wild to me. And the fact that she ultimately ends up getting her nomination, you know, a decade or more later for Hateful Eight is, again, almost salt in the wind. Because it's just like, I hate that. But like, yes, like on a global justice level, Jennifer Jason Lee should be an Oscar nominee. But like, you couldn't have given it to her for any of these roles in the early 90s. No. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. 94 Best Actress is continuously fascinating to me. It's... What a weird one. And of course, Juliette Lewis probably was not near cracking any of this. I mean, it doesn't show up in... But probably should have, right? Like Precursor nominations, but I in, also... You know, in terms of what? performance quality. She probably should have cracked that lineup in, in you know, a perfect world, Oh, right? 1,000%. I mean, yeah. she'd probably be... Of the performances I've seen, she'd probably be an easy winner for me. Um and also, it's like it's also the type of performance that I think today would be dumped into supporting. Yeah, that's dumb. Yeah, but yeah, it yeah, it would be dumb because she's 
She's the show on this. Do you want to talk about Robert Downey Jr. for a second? Sure. Let's talk about uh, 90s Robert Downey Jr. I have to say, I didn't... I mean, he's third build in the movie, but for somehow I still didn't capture that he was in the movie for some weird reason in my consciousness of what it was. So when I watch it, you hear him in voiceover first. Yes, you do. But he's got his, like, Robert Downey Jr. Aussie accent, which is like... yeah. Which is so arch and gross and intentionally so. But the second that you see him on screen talking, I laughed out of my skin. Yeah. Because I didn't know that it was him. I think that this his performance totally kind of goes off the rails a little bit for me. But at least just the concept of what he's doing. Yeah. I think it's what the movie requires of him. I think he's giving exactly the performance that stone wants and needs out of him it's Mm -hmm. it's tough to call this like a favorite performance because like i don't know if anything in this movie is like a favorite but i think he's fantastic in this like i genuinely do and i mean obviously it's a performance we don't talk about because like even i didn't know that he's in the movie but yeah i i there is a lot to appreciate and kind of gush over in what he's doing um and that he can kind of just like fall into what is probably the archest satire that the movie goes into and do it pretty smoothly yeah um in a way that feels like a performance and not um you know just a caricature this comes in the midst of a really wild era for him he's only a couple years removed from his first oscar nomination and best for best actor in chaplin which was in 92 um 95 he makes home for the holidays uh the jodie foster directed movie which he admitted he was doing heroin for that entire film and he's like very 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 deep into his drug addiction at this point he um gets his big arrest i think comes in 96 this first uh big arrest for that um the one thing i did not realize before reading up on this was that his um one of his trials where he was, you know, he eventually ends up like serving time in like a mm-hmm. state mandated rehab facility for like a year. Um, he was, his legal team was the OJ legal team. Like the full, I'd forgotten the that. full OJ legal team. Uh, maybe not Johnny Cochran at this point, but like Robert Shapiro, you know, all the way down. I also didn't realize that he like gets out of his year long rehab sentence. Um, Joins the cast of Ally McBeal. I knew he joined the cast of Ally McBeal. I didn't know it was like right out of state mandated rehab. Um, wins a Golden Globe, like is like hugely like revives Ally McBeal's ratings or whatever. Um, then falls off the wagon immediately. And like David E. Kelly has to fire him from Ally McBeal. This, you know, this actor who had like helped, you know, turn the ratings around and whatever and like brought it like this huge bit of success. Um, and fires him because he like has you know completely fallen off the wagon and is like breaking into people's houses in Palm Springs and whatnot and it's it's a whole like it's mm-hmm. a night you know a real nightmare in terms of the 1990s and Robert Downey Jr. Well, we've talked about like his many comebacks before, but we haven't really like gone into like especially this era of what 
it was like for him. And it's like, I, I truly do think that he's like one of the more substantial comebacks. I don't think a lot of yeah. people come back from that type. Him of... and Drew Barrymore, I always feel like are the two of the more sort of like improbable comeback stories. Did you also know that Woody Allen originally wanted to cast him and Winona Ryder in Melinda and Melinda, but couldn't get bonded for either? Wow. Yeah. Because that would have been during the free Winona era. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, like, can you imagine? Like, Melinda Melinda is not a bad movie, actually. I don't ever think about it. But um, imagine. And the, who he ends the up going with it. is Rada Mitchell and Will, and Will Ferrell. Ferrell. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yikes. But, like, imagine what that movie is with Winona Ryder and Robert Downey Jr. It's. Uh... Oh, the other thing reading up, I think the, the whole reading up on, on Robert Downey Jr.'s mid 90s was like one more cursed like statement after another but one of the things that had to get canceled when he ends up getting thrown going to jail for um parole violation is he was going to do a live stage version of hamlet in la directed by mel gibson that's that's cursed that is the most cursed he also had to drop out of america's sweethearts so like one thing on top of another truly all right yeah what else? What else uh, on our on our docket about natural born killers? What other? <laughs> we didn't even, I think, mention Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee oh, Jones boy. fully playing Two Face. I was. Just not I wrote in that down. Makeup. I wrote that down. I'm so glad you said that too. It is by the end of this movie, he is absolutely full on Harvey Two Face um, from Batman. Harvey's kind or not Harvey. Um, Tommy Lee Jones is kind of a really. I mean, the whole like grossness of JFK aside um the yeah this is his third know, straight a, a lot of people Oliver have... stone movie in four mm-hmm. years tommy lee jones is kind of a good performer at camp yeah this he is so off the rails by the end of this movie he's just like he's fully drooling in every shot he's, he's a looney like, tunes character he is he's like yosemite sam promising vengeance on on bugs yeah. bunny by the end by the time mickey and mallory are getting out of prison there's a riot but oh god this whole this and it's so I, I mean it's like it's obviously intentional we're not digging the performance i think by highlighting no. those things we're saying that he's great in this but it's so anathema to what we think of tommy lee jones doing um because i think at this point we just think of him as like this craggy old man or whatever but like he can kind of let loose in a way that i don't think has necessarily been um discussed or like cemented as a part of his well because a lot because the other part of his legacy is um the no country for old men in the valley of ella like i really do feel like the Mm -hmm. 2000s kind of cemented him as this very stoic grumpy sort of persona to the point where remember when in lincoln the fact that he was sort of like a little bit over the top people were like people really didn't a lot of people really didn't care for it because they thought he was sort of like being a little extra and part of me was just Uh sort of just like this isn't tommy lee jones being all that extra like we've seen tommy lee jones be extra like i just think it's yeah i think that performance is you know, has a lot of life and fun to it, and I really enjoyed it. I think it's a good performance. I really yeah. like it. Um, but yeah, I think this is this is Tommy Lee Jones going off the reservation. And <laughs> <laughs> speaking of which, one of my least favorite parts of this movie, but least surprising, is the indulgence in 
Navajo mysticism in a very, very mid-90s way. It reminded me of those X-Files movies where, like, Mulder would go and and visit his contact um, among the, like, Navajo code talkers or whatever. And I'm just like, it's it's very, very basic mid-90s sort of outsider mysticism. But it did lead to the snake scene, which freaked me out so fucking bad when they when they sort of like light up that torch and you see just how many coiled rattlesnakes are in that field like to take listeners behind the curtain in like discussing the episodes we were going to do joe posited this episode me not fully knowing the amount of footage of snakes that run through this movie (laughs) and him fully knowing my um you know bone deep fear of snakes um so the only thing i think i text him about this movie was something to the extent of how dare you for all the snakes i had fully i had maybe like suppressed the snakes so that's my defense of that um a lot of this movie made me think of other movies that sort of come either contemporary to it or after did you get flashes of the doom generation at all during this movie no it really made me feel like I wanted to watch the Doom Generation again, Greg Araki's movie, which came out the year after this with Rose McGowan and Jonathan Sheck and um, made me want to watch that movie You're again. You're more versed in Greg Araki than I am, so I haven't seen it. So that might be It's. Why. I would recommend you seeing it. It's real interesting. I, uh, you know, good is maybe a, a consideration that shouldn't be applied to a movie like that. Yeah. But, um, there's a there's a lot of that movie that I feel like, if not pulling consciously from this movie, um, you know, definitely similarities. This also this ad- all on the ether. Briefly in Natural Born Killers, you get a animated sequence that immediately reminded me of Pink Floyd's The Wall, which reminded me that mm-hmm. a lot of the boys in my uh, in my school at that time were very into Pink Floyd's The Wall for various reasons that you might extrapolate from drugs and such but yeah ah also did you catch jared harris yes jared harris is um there's a whole sequence of around the globe of the like uh, for lack of a better word standum for mickey and mallory and jared harris is one of them and he, I he's such a fan he's such and, a fan uh, of yeah. uh of mickey and mallory yeah took me a second i was like wait a second who is that I'm like oh shit it's jared harris um did this movie make you think of the house that jack built at all lars von Trier's the house that jack built that's an interesting comparison i never actually watched that movie it's on showtime um, a lot so i've actually seen bits and pieces of it a lot it is not a pleasant movie it's one it's it that sort of was the point of comparison was just like it's this movie that centers this uh this killer and like the house that jack built has a lot of like weird style it just looks gross and grungy and a sort of like mm-hmm. almost like a not quite a gummo level of of gross and grungy but like it is just an unpleasant experience on for a lot of reasons i can imagine um but it there was i did feel like i'm sure i would have i would have loved to have heard what von trier's take on natural born killers would have been um i'm sort of just going through my notes that i made definitely uh wrote down harvey two-face from uh batman forever oh 
Did you read? I read a little bit about the uh, the series of murders that were chalked up to copycat killings for from mm-hmm. natural born killers. The fact that one of them, one of these copycat killings, was eventually featured on that uh, oxygen show Snapped, and then also a I did also a reels that. show, both of them about killer couples. I'm like that makes the movie's point fucking exactly. right for you, like. It's an Ouroboros of horror, just like Jesus Christ. Wow, I did I did not see that in my research. That is insane. Yeah, yeah, truly. Um. Oh, one last thing as I as I browse through my notes, the diner scene at the beginning, the key lime pie. Have you ever seen a less appetizing <laughs> slice of key lime pie in your life? I don't like key lime pie. It looked like toxic jello pie. It did look like toxic. It, the green is not the color, not the hue of green that you want for a key lime pie. It looked so just neon green and awful. And like, oh, God. I love that anybody who had perhaps seen like JFK or Born on the Fourth of July and like you know, took some type of like Americana or whatever and like attributed that to or like a mindful Americana or something and attributed that to Oliver Stone and showed up for this. The diner scene is like, well, if you're not here for this, get out now. Yeah. Like, I just can't. Again, this is just like kind of a basic thought of like, I, I can't imagine just showing up for a theater like this and just being walloped with it. Yeah. Um yeah, I also it's it's interesting to me the JFK comparison where you look at JFK and one of the things that's remarkable about that movie is the cast that it attracted which is like 20 name actors like Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau are in this movie, Sissy Spacek, Edward Asner, you know, John Candy, Tommy Lee Jones is, of course, in both movies. Um, Joe Pesci, the year after he won an Oscar. Kevin Costner, the year after he won an Oscar. Like, one of the most sort of, like, starry, snazzy casts ever. And then you go to Natural Born Killers, and it's, like, every grubby character actor you ever wanted to meet, where it's, like, Tom Sizemore and, you know, Pruitt Taylor Vince and Olan Jones and... um just anybody who's ever played like Balthazar Getty and Robert Downey Jr. in the same movie. Like, are you kidding me? JFK is already like a cocaine movie, but <laughs> Natural Born Killers takes that cocaine movie and gives it hallucinogens. Like this, this felt very um, intrinsic to JFK. To Wait, me. did you know that Ashley Judd was in deleted scenes of this movie? Yeah, he like stabs her with a pen or something, right? In a courtroom. Oh, wow. Yeah. Horrifying. Also Mark Harmon, apparently. And Arliss Howard. And Boris Karloff. God, I'm just like reading through the, the cast on IMDb, <laughs> and I'm just like, what? <laughs> Rutherford B. Hayes? Sidekick? Know. Fuck you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What else? Do you have any uh, sort of odds and ends? I, I had to stop taking notes for this movie at some point because it felt like taking notes was actively like making me miss things yeah. in the movie yeah. because it just comes at you so rapidly and yes. insanely. I want to sort of button this on the Tarantino thing because again, I really, I can't, mm-hmm. I couldn't quite get past the idea that this was 
the crossroads for the two of them. And what does it's it's funny to me that Tarantino publicly hated this movie so you know overtly because there is a lot of this movie that you do f- like I f- see echoes of in later Tarantino stuff. Mm-hmm. Like there's stuff yeah. that, that in this movie that I feel like is in Kill Bill. There's stuff in this movie that I think is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to a much you know tamer effect. Yeah. Um, and just like that is a movie about violence, that the violence doesn't happen until basically the end of the movie. So is Tarantino um, a filmmaker who owes a debt to Oliver Stone? Is Oliver is Tarantino the filmmaker that Oliver Stone should have evolved into instead of evolving into any given Sunday and W and World Trade Center? Like what's I, I'm 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 not sure where where to go with that. I I mean to a certain extent, I mean, Nixon is not exactly, you know, lobbing a softball no, or anything. No, absolutely not. Um, to a certain extent, I wonder how much of the controversy around this movie kind of... It's not that he strayed away from controversial subjects. Like, people were pissed off that he made World Trade Center. Um, but then when you see the movie... Right. It's much more, it's not the Oliver Stone who's making this movie, um, even though he's like dealing with these subjects. And, I like, think W is the same w, way. W is exactly the same way. Like he, you know, came out and said that he wanted to do this movie while George W. Bush was in office. And like you watch that movie and it's like, this movie's not, right. you know, why, hitting hard at why all. Why did this, this movie is, have like, to be made while George W. Bush was in office? Like, like, yeah. Especially the movie that it is where it's like, this isn't interrogating anything this is it's a burlesque performance yeah absolutely yeah yeah it is it is a standard boring biopic um yeah so i guess my thing is did quentin tarantino make oliver stone unnecessary i mean i guess what i'm arguing is it's not that he is unnecessary it's that he is not provoking yeah. anymore because the interesting um, difference between them is tarantino for all his provocations never feels all that political mm-hmm. like even when he's burning down nazis and like you know f- finding justice for um you know slave populations or whatever he never feels like he's making a po- like he I- has a political anything political to say that's one thing I think is true about The Hateful Eight and that it's capturing a moment and it's kind of embodying, you know, the Trumpy culture um, and kind of trying to rub our noses in it in a way that I feel like is incredibly fruitless. Um, yeah. That's maybe the only one that I would pin that to, whereas, even though that's a movie I despise. Whereas Stone, throughout his especially early career, is so overtly political, has so many things to say about Vietnam, about... Um, sort of American, the American culture of the 60s, obviously why he thought uh, JFK was murdered. And then as he moves along, his political statements become A, flatter, and B, more muddled by what he's getting up to in his, you know, in his public life in terms of cozying up to Castro, cozying up to Vladimir Putin, you know, Mm -hmm. his... I don't know. Like, did you did you ever watch? Um, he had he had made a television series for Showtime based on the Howard Zinn um, People's History of the United States, 
And it's so turned into this, like, episodes-long screed against Harry Truman, which, like, fine. Like, if that's the American figure you want to, like, you know, take down, like, go for it, do it. Like, there are, you know, Mm -hmm. valid angles at that. But it comes across just so immature and basic and just sort of just, like, not rigorously, I don't know, like, it just... it just comes across as just like if this is the level to which you're going to be politically agitating like let someone else do it Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean yeah to a certain extent he did and he's uh, a lot of that fuels into his documentary filmmaking that nobody notices um right now yeah i definitely it, it feels like Oliver Stone's as much of an artifact from the early 90s as all of this, mm-hmm. you know, celebrity criminal culture is. Yeah. This, I mean, like, yeah, probably more so than anything I've, you know, engaged with in recent memory. This is a absolutely fascinating time capsule. Yeah. yeah, I think so, too. All right. Do you want to play the IMTV game? Absolutely. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints and film stock styles <laughs> and uh, aggressive violence and um, um, Juliet Lewis. I love when the IMDb game devolves into aggressive violence. It's truly a time. Uh, Listen, uh, I gave you both Derek and you <laughs> wanted to, to be... Yeah, to yeah. Me. if that's not violence, I don't know what is. So um, Boy. <laughs> do you want to give to me first or do you want to guess first? I'll give to you first let's hear it um kind of stumbled around to try to find people uh, to do for this i stuck with the oscar year a winning performance that we talked about that baffles us to this day is miss jessica lang winning her second oscar this year in best actress well her second in her first in that category but her second overall any television no television Okay, sorry, American Horror Story. Sorry for your efforts, Ryan. Sorry, Murphy. feud. Sorry, Great Gardens. Okay, um, Tootsie. Wonderful in Great Gardens. Tootsie, yes. All First right. Oscar, supporting actress. Yes. Terry Gar should have won. Terry Gar will tell you that to this day. Um. All right, Lang's interesting because obviously her career stretches back into the '80s, and you wonder how far you want to trust IMDb with that. And then in the 90s and 2000s, the roles sort of become fewer and far between. Is Cape Fear one of them? Cape Fear is not one of them, Juliette okay. Lewis's nominated performance. Yeah, okay. All right, Jessica Lang. So her other Oscar nominations in the 80s are like Music Box and Sweet Dreams and Francis, and I want to... S- Francis is the only one of those I would try to maybe guess. Isn't she also... Isn't she one of the farm wives in that year that Sally Field wins for Places in the Heart? I don't think she's nominated for that either. Um, I'll, I'll guess Francis. 
Francis, correct. You have wow. no wrong guesses. Okay. Well, I do have one wrong guess, because I guessed Cape Fear. Oh, yeah, Cape Fear, duh. Um, all right. Ms. Not Lang. dumb of you to guess the Scorsese, but in this case, it was wrong. Yeah. I can't imagine, like, um, it's not going to be, like, Cousin Bet or, uh, what's that other movie with her and Gwyneth Paltrow where, um, she's like the mean mother-in-law. Remember that? (laughs) Hush. She's like the mean mother-in-law and isn't like Gwyneth the, like, is the climax of that movie that Gwyneth Paltrow is trying to give birth and she's like oh, either torturing her or like not helping her. I've maybe never seen it. Maybe I misread thing. like the trailer because I never saw it because I was like, well, I I don't know, man. Nineteen ninety. Yeah, she's like evil, untrusting mother-in-law. Yeah. Okay. Um, I feel like there's got to be something more recent, and if it's not television, like Big Fish. No. All right, that's your two wrong guesses. Yeah. Your years are 1976 and 1994. All right. Is Blue Sky one of them? Blue Sky is one of them. Jesus Christ. The, the inexplicable <laughs> popularity of that movie continues. <laughs> Blue Sky. <clears throat> 1976. Is that when she was in King Kong? That is King Kong. Correct. Right. A movie uh, she played basically the Faye Ray role. Um, also, right. uh, shout back to our Naomi Watts miniseries where Naomi Watts played that role. But Meryl auditioned for this role for Dino De Laurentiis. And in Italian, in her audition, he says, why did you bring me this thing? And like called her ugly. Not oh. knowing that she spoke fluent Italian <gasps> and responded to him in Italian, I'm sorry I'm not to your liking, or something like that. Fuck yeah, Meryl. Fuck yeah. I love it. Amazing. That's an interesting... That's a really interesting IMDb. So her most recent is Blue Sky. Yes. That's one of the TV shows up in there. It's probably an Oscar thing, right? Because you have her two Oscars in there. You yeah. have her Oscar nomination from the first year that she won, where people are like, she won for Tootsie because of Francis, and she wasn't going to lose to Meryl in um, right. Sophie's Choice. But then That's King crazy. Kong, like, nobody talks about that King Kong movie. Nobody watches that King Kong movie. Yeah. That's crazy. That's All right. Well, well chosen, Chris. For you, I Oomst. went into... The Oliver Stone, well, of course, trying to, there's a wealth of possibilities in terms of uh, actors from Oliver Stone movies that I could pick. I went to a, uh, we mentioned it briefly, uh, W, one of the more unhinged performances in W, and thus the (laughs) best one, playing Condoleezza Rice. Playing Condoleezza Rice in W, a performance that must be seen to be believed. I'm giving you Tandy Newton. One of them is television. Westworld. Yes, Westworld. Um, crash. winning role in Westworld. Crash, yes. Cool. Uh, Mission Impossible 2. Yes. Three for three. I hate you. <laughs> um, okay. This is where it does get difficult. It does. For Tandy. Yes beloved no i probably would have guessed beloved but it is not okay um she's like the she's the she's the lady in other action movies um she's in one of the riddicks i don't think condoleezza rice is gonna be on there because she's got to be like 12th build 
for that movie. Yeah, I would say. Um, she's done some Tyler Perry movies. That's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say for Colored Girls. No, not for Colored Girls. So no. that's too wrong. Your uh, missing year is 2006. Mm. So right after Crash. Yes. Oh. Before Condoleezza Rice. Mm-hmm. This was the thing about Tandy Newton post-crash is, like, if anybody... Uh, I mean, Terrence Howard obviously did, and he's good in Crash. But, it, like, Tandy Newton didn't really launch in the way that you would expect, especially, like, she won the BAFTA. Um, Wait, for what? For Crash? Yeah. Wow. Pretty sure she, she was never in the to. Oscar conversation, really. It, it's yeah, it's very strange to me that there wasn't yeah. a supporting actress nomination for that movie. Also, um, I'd like to make note of the fact, and this will probably knock a couple possibilities off your list. But her two thousand seven, her two movies in two thousand seven are Norbit and Run, Fat Boy Run. Maybe not the uh, cornering the, the market, Miss Newton. Yeah, I guess so. Run, um, Fat Boy Run is so bad. That was what David Schwimmer directed. That. Oh boy. Simon Pegg running a marathon. It's a terrible, unfunny. Because movie. he's so fat. Simon yeah, Simon Pegg. Pegg. Big roly poly Simon Pegg. Jesus. Um, I know. God, she was in Norbit. Wow. So she crashed in on Crash. Cashed in on Crash. Cashed in on Crash with Norbit. Yeah. So the movie you are missing is directed by somebody who directed a movie that we've uh, talked about on this at Oscar Buzz before, like has been a subject. Okay. Of a This Had Oscar Buzz episode. Starring I mean, that same actor. As the movie we talked about. Actor yes. male. Um, yes, yeah, she is, I'm pretty sure, the love interest in this movie. Okay. Such as it is. And you said Norbit was 2007, so it's pre-Norbit. Yes. This movie is. It would have had to have been some type of prestige director if we were talking about it and you mentioned it by the director. Uh. The movie in question is a real fucking trip. I'll say that. Like, really? That's a. It was a notoriously off the rails movie. This Especially. is one of those things where it's the year is not helping me. It's kind of actively not helping me. Well, what are what are things that a year can be helpful for? Uh, Oscars. Uh huh. This is an Oscar movie. Hmm. Okay. I Was believe it, it had best... one Oscar nomination. One Oscar nomination f- for like a performance or a uh-huh. screenplay. Okay, performance. performance. You mentioned an actor is the same in both movies. Was it that actor? Yes. Oh, six. Uh, mm. <laughs> you were giving me the hint of seven pounds. Yep. It's got to be The Pursuit of Happiness. It is The Pursuit of Happiness. I've never Will seen Smith. The Pursuit of Happiness. You're not missing a whole hell of a lot, I'm going to say. It's a well-intentioned movie, but it is not right. terribly good. 
Um, Seven Pounds is the one I would watch of the two of them, just because Seven oh, Pounds wow. goes so bug nuts by the end. Seven Pounds is bananas. Listen yeah. to that episode. Um, wow, Tandy Newton. Yeah, Fantastic. yeah. Some some. I'm I'm not exactly surprised that those are hers, but like, there's. I mean, she's in Solo. You know what I mean? Like, she's in <laughs> bigger. She's like the best thing about Solo. Yeah, she's in. Uh, I don't know, Rock and Rolla. She's in Chronicles of Riddick. You were right about that. She's in uh, Chronicles of Riddick. She's in The Truth About Charlie. Again, love interest in a uh, action movie. One thing I always forget that I know is she's in Interview with the Vampire. She is the yes. um, the New Orleans housemaid that um, that they feed off of in that mm. one sort of as the plantation is burning down around them and whatnot what a movie interview with the vampire yeah um so that's our episode on natural born killers a thoroughly unpleasant movie that uh isn't was nonetheless really fascinating to talk about chris i'm glad we Mm -hmm. uh we got our chance to do that that um is that if yeah. you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? I am on Twitter, Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Very good. Yes, indeed. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, spelled the exact same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please let your love for our podcast kill the demon by writing some nice things about it that is all for this week but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz yeah.